look together here and I'll read verses 1 through 6. It's a little bit, uh, you can say the beginning, the first few acts we're going to see of when the Lord returns, what does he first do? And you could say these things here in the first six verses are probably a little more positive, which is nice in Revelation because this is where you get excited. This is the hope we have that Christ returns and raises not only those who have survived the tribulation uh, that are believers into this millennial kingdom, but of course uh, that we're part of that, I think, general first resurrection, which is talking not only about Christ being the first fruits, but I think the church, which we can talk about that when we get there. It's my opinion that we get a resurrection bodies at the rapture. Um, but then as well here, you're going to see this resurrection of the saints as well here. Let's look here at 20 verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Father, we come this morning desiring to grow in our knowledge of you, that we would have a vision of you that is um, informed by your word, even within our own limitations being creatures and you being the creator, Lord, that we even are able, perhaps unlike any other created thing on this planet, we can recognize our inability to comprehend you. And even in that moment, we understand something about you, that you are incomprehensible, that you are the almighty, the creator, Lord, of which we see parts. We even see in humanity your image reflected in so many ways. But yet you still stand alone. Lord, as we look again this morning at the return of Christ to this earth, Lord, help us to understand all that is going on. Help us to look forward in confidence and rejoicing in, it's not a matter of if this will happen, but just a question of when. And Lord, what a privilege it is understanding the role of those who are yours, those who have come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, as Savior, that they can participate not only now in the mission of the church, but also in the kingdom in the future as Christ reigns from his throne in Jerusalem. We just pray that we would be worshipful this morning as we seek to know and to learn more and more about who you are and your desire to see all things that are wrong made right. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
Well, as you look down at Revelation at chapter 20, this is my disclaimer this morning. I don't have any clever introduction. In fact, I had a retired preacher once tell me uh, that he was so tired of long introductions. He said, you know, you, you need a hook or an introduction, as speech coaches may talk, when people aren't, they, they come in and they don't know why they're here. They don't know why they're listening. And so you're trying to let, tell them why they need this information, why they need to hear what you are, are going to say, or in you know, the sales world, why they need the product that you are selling or create a need and all those things. And he said, no, like in church, they're coming. We're all under, hopefully, the same uh, understanding that you're here to worship God. And you're here to hear the word preached. So he's a little bit like, get on with it. And then he looked at me, like, you know, a seven-year-old looks at you and says, and your job is just to keep them interested. You should already be interested. If you love Christ and you love his word, I don't really need to get you interested this morning. You should be interested. And I suppose then my job is a little bit more of keeping you interested. And so I just want to set, my, set your expectations this morning as we look, because Revelation 20 is pulling a lot of threads together throughout the whole of Scripture. And so we're going to need to do a little bit of work, and we're going to look at a lot of things. And you might feel like, man, I'm at work, and this is death by PowerPoint. I'm trying to serve you. Um, by, by doing a little less flipping. We're still going to do some flipping. I'm still going to say some references that we're not going to go to. And I'm going to imply that there's a lot more because there are. As you look at why we understand the chronological movement in Revelation from 19 to 20, that will um, understand Christ as coming in 19. And now get this, and I don't really mean this as uh, belittling as it sounds. But I really do believe the scripture is straightforward. I don't think it's difficult to say why do we have a position as a church that we, um, we've talked, we're talking these words a little bit, um, that we are premillennial. And it's really as simple as you look at Revelation 19 and what happens? What do we see? Who returned on the white horse? Christ. Right? So the prefix pre, he came back, he returned. You see Armageddon. And then chapter 20, he sets up the millennial kingdom. And it's that simple for me. He came, he sets up his kingdom. He doesn't set up his kingdom and then return, which would be a post-millennial view, or understanding this more in a spiritual sense of we're currently in the millennium. And maybe we'll save a few comments for that a little bit later, but I don't know if I have to say much more than, um, for those of you who can remember what old papers look like, I just would recommend go find one and read the news and decide um, if you look at all the kingdom millennial passages in the Old and the New Testament, and then you open up that newspaper and you let me know if this is the kingdom or not. That's going to be my advice on that one. But this is the promise kept in 19 that Christ said he will return. We saw 1,845 times in the scriptures it talks about the second coming of Christ, whether as Messiah, as Savior, as King. And that's why we can't go to all those places because it happens so often. 23 out of the 27 books talk about the return of Christ in the New Testament. Out of 260 chapters in your New Testament— 318 times you see the second coming of Christ mentioned. Christ himself mentions his return 22 times. But the question is, are there any other promises that accompany his coming? Is it just enough to say Christ comes back? Or is there more promises in the scriptures that need to be fulfilled? And my answer is yes. Just as you saw at his first advent, his first coming, there were promises fulfilled. We're still waiting for more than his return, his physical return. There are things that he will fulfill 
And I look and say, and there's things in the Old Testament, especially we're going to see where there are promises, particularly that involve a nation Israel and a land that you go, where were those fulfilled? Kind of get to the end of the book and you go, I knew there were some things early on in the book and I I was waiting and they never really got tied up. And here we are in Revelation 20 and there's only a couple chapters left. What's going to happen? And I think in here you can see with the question of why. Why not go straight into the new heavens and the new earth? Why, and we're not going to talk as much this week as next week, um, why bind Satan? Because we talk about that in this passage, but then 7, 8, 9, 10. Why let him loose? Why play the game as it were? Well, I think it's partially because life, the Lord wants to be glorified in living, right? Why are we still here? Why? We're, we're not the most effective, you could say, agents for evangelism. We're fallen human beings, but this is part of the process that gives God glory. He could be a far more effective evangelist than you or I ever could be, yet he wants to work in, in and through individuals. And so I think that's similar here. There are things that are going to happen in time and in place in that millennial kingdom that are going to give him honor and a glory in a way that throughout no other time in history have you ever seen it happen. And so yes, there are things that still have not been fulfilled that I think have to be fulfilled before you see the new heavens and new earth. And it would make sense to me as we look at those passages that it happens in this thousand year reign. And so Christ is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. And we're going to see that here in chapter 20. He returns, yes, but then he also is going to establish his kingdom. But I have a—oh, man. I was not up there the whole time. You can throw that back up there. That was a little unintentional. I see. I think we're technically behind a slide because I messed it up. Yes. That's going to come back. We'll leave that for the end. That actually was going to be taken out of the sermon is what happened, so— if you can recognize any of those two people in there, you'll, it'll make sense eventually. But looking at the text, this, this is what I really do think should be the most exciting thing that gives us hope that Christ establishes his kingdom. And here that we rejoice because this is, as you're going to see, all these things come together with life. With where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory, O grave? It all comes together here and we see it in this passage. But I do want to look a little bit at some of these unfulfilled promises. What, you may, if you've been working through for six months your Old Testament reading, you might start to see some of those things. But over and over again, you're going to see things. You're going to read things if you read your scripture. And this is a promotion for why you should continue to read your scriptures over and over. Because you're going to go, well, when did this happen? When did this happen? When did this happen? And some of the time, especially when you get to the bigger prophetic books like Isaiah, he's going to be toggling back and forth between that, things that are happening and then things that are going to happen. And it can be difficult unless you see his pattern of the way he's looking at judgment and salvation and the way they go, not only in the coming of the Messiah, which he does talk about, but also in the end of the ages, the day of the Lord, this big period of which Revelation is, the day of the Lord and the tribulation period and his return. And so, for example, Deuteronomy 4, which I've mentioned before, you have a promise that Israel, it's literally a prophecy. Israel is going to, they're going to rebel and they're going to go into exile. And if you look and you think about it, Deuteronomy 4 is before they're even established. Before there's any kings in Israel, it's prophetic that they're going to go into exile. Yet it's also then, another part of that promise is that he will never forsake them, that they will return. And so we saw the first part of it, 
But we really haven't seen, even in the kind of return and the establishment you see in that era of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, it's not what we read. And so we're waiting still a future for that. An example, again, would be Isaiah 19. Just kind of thinking of this in, in the way that you see the land. Isaiah 19, verse 21, it says, Thus Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make a vow to Yahweh and pay it. And Yahweh will smite Egypt, smiting but healing, so that they will return to Yahweh, and he will be moved by their entreaty and will heal them. And in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Syria. And the Egyptians will worship with Assyria. Now if you don't kind of think about Assyria on a map, think of modern day Iraq, which I don't know about you, but I don't think of it as a peaceful place. And what this is saying in Isaiah is there's coming a time and actually this follows a judgment of Egypt. But then a promise to Egypt and the coastlands, which is Isaiah's way of talking about the Gentiles. There's a time coming when you're going to see peace and they're going to worship together. In fact, there's going to be a highway from Egypt to Assyria that's going to come. And they're going to come together and they're going to worship Yahweh. And knowing that we're not all experts in world history, I submit to you that has not happened yet. Isaiah 62 goes on. And you'll see multiple ones. I'm just going to pick a few out of Isaiah for sake of time. But Isaiah 62 says it will no longer in that day. And I think this is talking about millennial kingdom. This is talking about the return uh, when the, the rightful king sits on his throne. And it will be no longer said to you, to Israel, forsaken. Not to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you'll be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in you, and to him your land will be married. And again, notice, if you go back to the Abrahamic promises, this is always involving these land promises, which is why it's hard, I believe, to spiritualize these things. Yahweh takes pleasure in you, and to him your land will be married. And for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I don't see that. And it's hard to input the church in there when there is that distinction kept throughout, not only the old, but in the new. And then another one, just thinking of Daniel chapter 2, where Daniel has a dream where the nations ultimately are going to be completely recalibrated around him. He's going to come in as this, this stone that's going to smash the statue, if you remember that vision. We're just looking at two verses here in 44 and 45. But in those days, the kings with God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. Which, by the way, doesn't that sound where we've been in Revelation? He's going to come back and he's going to crush all those, those ten kings, um, the, the ten kingdoms that are led by the beast, the Antichrist. He's going to crush them and he's going to establish something. It says, though, he's going to put an end to them, but it will itself, this kingdom, stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, which all represent these kingdoms, the silver and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. And I think this still yet future. So the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. God gave that interpretation. Not only he gave Daniel the ability to know the dream, but also to interpret the dream. 
Micah chapter 4 describes the time when Israel will be the center of the world. The Savior will reign from Jerusalem. There will be no conflict. There will be no wars. Jeremiah 23, verse 3. God will raise a shepherd. The shepherd will not be just a shepherd of Israel, but a shepherd of the whole world. That's one of those themes you see. Of, it's not just over the nation, but over the whole world. There will be peace in Judah and Israel will be securely in the land. First Chronicles 17.8 talks about Israel and that the fact that the wicked will never attack you again. Psalm 132 says Zion is God's dwelling place. Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Ezekiel 40 gives a description of the temple. A temple that is larger in dimension than any other temple that has ever been built. In other words, it hasn't been built yet. But there is a prophecy it will be built. Rivers, it says, will flow from that temple. Well, if you look at Israel today, there's no rivers near that temple mount. But it will be remade in such a way. And I would submit to you, you see those bold judgments and it makes sense where, oh, the earth is going to look a lot different. And it would look at Ezekiel 40, the rivers will flow out of the temple. And then lastly, we will turn for this, go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 is just a helpful look. Because I also think as we get to the passage this morning, you're going to see it doesn't necessarily talk about the remnant being gathered in that way, but you understand that is exactly what has to happen. The king comes back and somewhere in the midst of this is he is gathering all those believers, uh, whether it's the, the sealed, um, 144,000 or those believers that he gathers. But it says here, what is it going to look like? What is that world going to look like? Because it kind of goes to that question of is the millennium now or is it future? And you start to see these aspects of the things that happened in the curse on the earth in Genesis chapter 3. You start seeing them reversed. Just looking at verse 6 of chapter 11, it talks about that the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together and a young boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra. And a weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. You look outside and you see a young child and he's playing with the cobra. And you go, no big deal. He's just playing with the cobras, playing with the vipers. They will do no evil, nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh. Again, not just, this isn't just the nation here. This is, this is the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And then you're going to see this restored remnant. Verse 10, that in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, another name for Christ, who will stand, the descendant of David, text Samuel 7, that will reign on the throne forever. It will stand as a standard for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And then it will be in that day that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, which again is Isaiah's way of saying the Gentiles. He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And again, you ask, when does this happen? 
When does verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who assail Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not assail Ephraim. They'll be peace. They will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west and together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will stretch out their hands over Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will obey them. Yahweh will devote to the destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt. He will wave his hand over the river and his with the scorching wind, and he will strike into seven streams and make men walk over dry shot. And there will be a highway, as I said, similar to other places where he talks about this, highway from Assyria for the remnant as people who will remain just as there was for Israel. And in the day they came up out of the land of Egypt. And there's no point in history where you can see all of these things line up. And so I go and say, this is future. And it seems to mesh really well with the return of the Messiah, Revelation 19. And then him setting up a kingdom where all these things are fulfilled and true. And so, yes, he has to come back and return and be faithful to his promise to return. But he also needs to be faithful to all the promises in Scripture. Just as he was faithful in his first coming. And you saw, when those who were here with Matthew, and we saw all the fulfillments in Matthew of the Messiah. I think you'll see those same fulfillments and we'll be in awe at what God has done in the way that he has orchestrated it all together. And it's going to give him more glory and we will worship him even all the more. So now I'll turn back to Revelation chapter 20 and I go, because there's not as much mentioned here, but there are things that are emphasized. One of them is how important is it? And is it a literal thousand years or not? And if I would say if it is representative or it is uh, a picture for something, you have to kind of answer, well, what is it a picture for? Because that's where it's difficult because you look and you see, yes, there are representative numbers in Revelation, but here you get no indication that this would be representative. In fact, what's emphasized over and over again is this is going to happen and it's going to be a thousand years. Verse 2, bound for a thousand years. Verse 3, until the thousand years were finished. The end of verse 4, Christ reigns for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, verse 5, will not come to life until the thousand years were finished. They will reign with him for a, end of verse 6, a thousand years. And then verse 7, and when the thousand years are finished. I understand there's only six verses here, but in those six verses, or you could say seven technically is where you see the sixth instance of this word used. Millennium, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. It's emphasized this is a period of time. Even you can see that the concept of the time being relative, verse three, to Satan being released for a short time. This is not five minutes. This is not seven years. This is not a hundred years. And therefore, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't take it At face value, you say this is a thousand years. And so you're looking and saying, and over this course of this time, all of these things are going to be happening and the earth is going to look the way I would say it was meant to look. The things that God intended pre-Genesis 3 in the fall, that's the way he will remake and the earth will look in this way. And we'll wait till next week and see why the release then and, and what is that all about and we'll discuss that next week. But when you see the kingdom established, he returns in 19 and he establishes the kingdom. We're just going to look at the two actions here. And there seems to be more going on than just these two, but this is the two in the text. So at least uh, we know at least two of the actions that take place when the king returns. And the first one is going to be the removal of Satan. So the first of these two actions of the returning king is he's going to remove Satan. Because you're not going to get 
pre-Genesis 3. You're not going to get pre-cursed without removing Satan. Which is interesting just to think about the role of Satan in this world and in this system. And I think we all understand he has influence, but the amount of influence he has, it seems. Christ will also be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. But it's going to transform the way the world looks and you're going to see true justice as Christ reigns. I think the fulfillment on David's throne from 2 Samuel 7 in Jerusalem. But you see this first action, this first removal, because you're not going to have a reign without subduing the great enemy. Uh, The end of verse 20 or end of verse 19, you saw that we have uh, the beast, the Antichrist, the seas, the false prophet who did signs in his presence. And they are cast into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. But no one else is. And Satan isn't here as well. He is going to be bound because there is still a purpose that God has for him. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to see just the first three verses that... I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Just got to love how visual revelation is. And I imagine a big chain, big key. But it's this idea that he has authority. We've seen the key used this way before. We've seen this even mentioned throughout the scriptures that there were demons who were chained that were um, disobedient in Genesis chapter 6. Jude and Peter referenced them. I take this as the same abyss that the demons come out of. And he just sends an angel. That's the vision. It doesn't take an army. Also interesting. It doesn't take a legion of angels. It just takes one who has a job, who has authority, empowered by God to say, no more. Satan, you're done. Come with me. And he has the authority, the key, to lock him into the abyss with a great chain, which apparently can hold Satan. So he lays hold in verse 2 of the dragon. The phrase we've seen over and over again, it's, very explicit, 12 and 13, that Satan is the dragon. But he even clarifies that he calls him the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Which again is that first reference to this time period of this reign of Christ. He's come back, he's establishing his, his rule and reign, which will last forever. But there are certain things being accomplished in this period that need to be accomplished before you see a complete reset of the new heavens and the new earth. The dragon, he's called 12 times in the book of Revelation. The serpent of old, reference back to Eden, but he's also again the slanderer, the malicious one, the one who's caused all kinds of evil, the adversary. But he's bound And that bounding means, that binding means that there's going to be this unprecedented time in human history. All the way from the fall, Satan has been loose. And here he will be bound. It's one of the reasons I think the understanding or view that this is the millennium is difficult to swallow. Because it's hard for me to look around the world and look at everything that's happening and understand and say, yeah, for sure, Satan's bound. I don't know. It doesn't mean Christ has any less authority. Of course, he has ultimate authority. He always has. But is he exercising it in this moment in the church to keep Satan at bay in that way? And it doesn't seem to be the case. Rather, this is future. Christ returns. He establishes his kingdom. And then in that era, in that thousand-year reign, he is bound. And 
taking it for what it just says plainly there in verse 20. But it's unprecedented. This deceiving work. Remember the beast and the false prophet were deceiving the nations. All of that ends. There's no more lies being told. In fact, we're going to see here as well. I think there is the judgment that is going on as well. And so that all that enter into this millennial kingdom are going to be believers, at least the ones who are the humans who enter into this millennial kingdom. So it's going to be something like you've never seen before. The curse will not be found. Satan's bound. He's sealed in the abyss. Like I said, we'll look next week at what I think that means as far as why then release him at all? Why not throw him into the lake of fire? I think it's because of God's purposes, which we know at least perhaps in part, if not, um, we'll one day know more. We can ask the question in heaven. But he needs to remove Satan. So he does that by placing him into the abyss. And then secondly, the second action is the resurrection and the reigning of the saints. The resurrection and the reigning of the saints. And it's on this that I do want to take another little bit of a detour and and have an understanding of what is going on here. Because it seems if you look at all of Scripture that there are lots of different pieces that are going on here. And it gives some helpful context. As you saw in Isaiah, there is a remnant that is going to be gathered. So if you just look at 4 through 6 and the way it's written, what we understand clearly from this text is that John sees in his vision, he sees thrones. Not a throne, but they seems to be not the throne of God where there's a single throne, but there are multiple thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the witness of Jesus and because of this word of God, who had also not worshipped the beast of his image and had received the mark on his forehead and on their hand. And they came to life And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, just looking at it, you see this idea of thrones that are plural. There are many thrones. They are given some level of authority that is given to them to be judges. And then he says, who did he see? He sees those who were martyred because of the word of God. Those who were martyred during this tribulation, they are there and they are ruling and they are reigning. And you could say, well, who else is there? And it seems to say, kind of just giving an overview that the rest, verse 5, of the dead did not come until life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And of course, blessed, as we'll see, are those who take part in that first resurrection. But it it seems to be that all of these things are happening at once where we know that at this point in time that the remnant of Israel particularly is going to be gathered. Again, looking at references like Isaiah 43, verse 5 through 7, it's not just the martyred saints there. But I also believe the church. But he's going to gather. Isaiah 43, just looking at a couple verses there. He says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east. I will gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, Give them up. And to the south, Do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, every one whom I have made. He's going to restore and gather all that is his from the four corners of the earth. And then even Matthew 24, looking at the all that discourse from Jesus, says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And so again, it doesn't give all the information in the all that discourse. Revelation doesn't give all the information, but it gives more information. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great 
glory. And he will send forth his angel with a great trumpet and they will gather together, what? His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. They're going to be gathered. And not only are they going to be gathered, but also at this point, there's going to be judgment. Judgment for those who are living. Not, we're going to see the judgment here of the sheep and the goats. Ezekiel 20, verse 37, verse 30, it says, I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I'll bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am Yahweh. Again, there seems to be this separation that goes on. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 25, just to look more explicitly here at this. Because it is, it is helpful in trying to piece things together. Matthew 25, verse 31. And again, you see here this discussion of the, the, the last days. There's usually no parallel for what is happening here or being prophesied by Jesus here in, in any of human history. And there's this longer section of these 15 verses where you're going to see that there's a separation that happens. And I think this happens at when he returns in this period before the millennial kingdom begins. And then it says, But when the Son of Man came or comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in, and naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer. Again, this is this separation, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you thirsty, give you something to drink? When did, you see, when did we see you a, as a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, or come to you? And the king answers, and says to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And you also say to those on the left, depart from me. And those are the ones who are faithful to the Lord during this great tribulation period. I think probably more specifically, even brothers here is probably talking about Israel during who's particularly being pursued and persecuted by Satan in that tribulation that we've seen over and over in Revelation. Well, then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. That is, you weren't faithful. You didn't obey the things. You didn't protect mine. You didn't obey my words. Then they themselves will answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, prison, and not take care of you? And he'll answer to them saying, because they're going to say, they're going to kick, they're going to scream, they're going to say, but we didn't do anything that bad. And he's saying, listen, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, there's this separation that comes. And I think you gotta, doesn't, we have it 
not clearly here in Revelation chapter 20, but that's where I would place it there at the beginning of the millennium. Which makes sense because you have Satan being bound and you have this judgment happening and those entering into the kingdom at that point. Those who enter in the millennium, they're going to be judged before entering. And those who are righteous, not just in deeds, but particularly the context of the whole scripture in here, righteous because of their faith in the Messiah, their faith in Christ, they will enter. Turn back to Revelation 20. You're going to see the after Satan is bound, you're going to see this reigning and this ruling, the thrones. Actually, go well, while you're there. Revelation 3, verse 21. Remember, we saw the, the promise in a similar way. Do we have any precedence for this? Because, of course, you feel like in this sense, it's like the crowns. Well, if, if I get a crown, it's just to throw it right back at Christ's feet. How can we reign with him in any way? But you see that promise in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant him. And I don't think it's an accident. This is the last of the churches that he talks to in one of the last words before you get into a big break and you move towards the vision of heaven in chapter 4. He says, he, verse 21 of first, or chapter 3, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So I do think you see here a fulfillment of that, that that is what he is granting in this period of future history. They're going to sit on the thrones, they're going to reign, and they're going to be able to deal out judgment and deal out it rightly. The Lord will, of course, be the supreme and the ultimate and the final authority. And so you see this kind of panorama of God's people, the, the resurrected people. And so I think in that you have the church, and you have the Old Testament saints, and you have the tribulation saints at this period. And then you're going to have those who enter alive into the kingdom and this reign that will happen for a thousand years. But you're going to see, verse 5, that it isn't the final resurrection. That is, unbelievers aren't resurrected at that point. That's going to come later. That's going to be called the second resurrection, which you don't want to be part of. Rather, you want to be, it says, part of this first resurrection. The first resurrection that comes we can look at a couple places, and you can, want, you can ask me more questions um, looking at why I understand the Old Testament saints. It seems you can place their resurrection here based on multiple passages in the Old Testament. They are part of this first resurrection, which is Christ, the first fruit, the church. Again, Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. But it's emphasized again over and over again, until the thousand years are finished, this is the first resurrection. And then you have the fifth of... Uh, or six, actually, of seven blessings. You always think it, seven when you think of Revelation. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven blessings. It says, blessed and holy, which is the only time it's ever added the, the idea of holiness. But it says, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And again, it wasn't enough in verse 4 that they are sitting on the thrones, but they will reign with him for this period, which is for 
This is the fifth of six times described as this thousand-year reigns. We're going to see later that the second death is clear. The second death is that they are cast into the lake of fire. And so, of course, you want to be part of the first resurrection because then the second death, it says, has no authority. Why? Because Christ has purchased you. And so you look at all of this and you ask the question of what, at least I do, what will the millennial kingdom be like? You actually probably, the most description I think you can see is probably in the book of Isaiah. But the creator of all things will be rightfully the king. Imagine it'll look the way it was supposed to look when the earth was actually fulfilled. It was filled with people and after say Genesis 2, without the fall, Christ will learn righteously. There's not going to be fear. You're going to see it in the animal kingdom. You're going to see it in human beings. Most importantly, it's marked by the righteousness, the peace, and, and the presence of the Lord. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says it this way. It says, In his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from them on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All the way for thousands of years, God's revelation, his word to his people, it is this movement towards this hope and this comfort that you can say with Paul... Oh, death, where is thy sing? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Blessed are those who get to be part of the first resurrection. But that it goes back to the very nature of the gospel. It goes back to who has paid the penalty of sin and death for you. And there's only one who can. And it is the call of the gospel that we would repent of our sin. And that we would turn and believe in the work of Christ and what he has done for us. That we would then be, as we saw, waters of baptism that were identified, united with Christ. Not only in his death, and that is our death to our sin, he's paid for it, but also raised to life again. And that's the promise. Then, yes, you may one day, and if we're the Lord tarries, it's true of all of us, we are going to physically die. But we will have no threat of a second eternal death because we are in Christ and so, although we can see certain things in this world that are beautiful and wonderful, blessings God has given, blessings even in the church, in the church family, it still is something seen dimly. But this is the moment in the future, in history, where it will be seen clearly. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. The vision that you gave to the Apostle John to see a future where Christ is reigning. And we can even see further descriptions as we understand the promises. We see, for example, in Isaiah 11, where the lion is eating hay like a harmless livestock. That the curse is removed. And although we tend to think of a song, a hymn like Joy to the World as a first Advent Christmas song. We understand 
there is a sense in which the, the curse has been spiritually been removed. But we await even to see the physical manifestations of that. Yes, Christ has authority. Yes, he is sitting at your right hand. Yes, he is advocating for us. But there is still a time coming where he will return and he will establish his reign and his rule as we've seen this morning. So we long for that. We look for that. And we are comforted by that. Even as I'm sure, thinking of the Apostle John, that he was shipwrecked, as it were, in isolation on Patmos, imprisoned, that this would give him hope. Not to look out and think everything is in this life, but that the king is returning and he will make all things right. So we just ask this in your son's name. Amen.